New Year, new book of the Bible that we're preaching through together. From today through Easter Sunday, we'll be doing part one in the book of Acts, hanging out in, studying, sitting under uh, the words that the Spirit has inspired for our good. I've got a simple two-fold job today. One is to preach in a way that would stir your affections for Jesus. That's always one A. And then one B is to help you position yourself to receive the beauty and the grace and the power of Jesus as it's about to hit you week after week from the biblical book of Acts. So get you excited about Jesus and get you ready to see Jesus unfolded for you in the words from the book of Acts. Okay, any book readers in the room? I know Allison is a book reader because it took me like 20 seconds to get her attention at Starbucks because she was so into this book. Anybody else like that? And I don't mean Kindle, iPad, Galaxy. I mean book, book. All right, when I'm about to start a new book, I got a three-step process. Number one is the back flap. You know what's in there? Who, well, not this, but who wrote the book? Who wrote the book? That's where I go first. Where are they from? Are they from south of the Mason-Dixon line? Because then I don't trust them already. <laughs> Where have they been? Where have they been educated? What else have they written? How goofy is their stock photo? I want to know who it is that I'm going to be giving my brain and my time to if I'm going to work through this book. All right, who in the back flap? Then number two up at the front is the preface. You know what that is? That's the why of why this book was written. That's the author personally talking to you and saying, it's a wicked lot of work to write a book. Here's why I have given myself to this work. And I really want to do the author right and to say, hey, you tell me what you are trying to do in my brain, in my heart, potentially, through these words, so that we're on the same page here. So I got the who and I got the why, and then last, table of contents. And that gives you a sketch of the what. Where is this book headed? And I don't mean like a sixth grader who's like, how many chapters? If it's more than six chapters, I'm not reading it. How long are the chapters? I mean, what's going to be the flow of this book? Where does it begin? What's the map of the journey they're going to take me on? And where does this thing end? What is the end game in mind of the author in this book? If I am down with all three of those, the who and the why and the where, then chapter one, here we go. That's all I'm trying to do with you today in the book of Acts. The first eight verses function as the back flap and the preface and the table of contents. They give you the who and the why and the where are we going. So I want you to hear them again with me. We're going to get them down in our souls. We want to be ready for what Jesus, by his spirit, might do in your individual life, in the life of your home, and in the life of our city through these words of scripture. So hear them again with me. Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive 
with, after his suffering with many convincing proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by my authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we do not come to your words without humble prayer, because without the illumination of your Spirit, they will seem plain and boring and doubtful and untrue and useless. We love our own words more than yours. We confess that. But if you could work in our hearts to come to these words and see them for what they are, alive and inspired and sharp and helpful, something beautiful could happen in the life of our church. So I pray that as we give ourselves to be nowhere else but here right now, that you would lock us in with your word and your spirit for our good and for your glory. Hear my prayer and answer. Amen. Amen. All right, before I hit the author, just a quick thing, because I don't want to lose people two seconds in. I'm from Everett, Massachusetts. Washington, D.C. is like wicked south to me. So if you're from down there, you can stick with me. Okay. <laughs> Let's start with our author. Here's the first thing that we read. In the first book, O Theophilus, I, I, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Who is the I in there? Who wrote the book of Acts? It's Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke. Have you ever met somebody that was really smart and really hardworking and also really holy? Get that person in your mind. That's our man, Dr. Luke. Luke was a medical doctor. What does that tell you right away? Right away. Intelligent and learned, and educated, and disciplined. It is hard work to become a medical doctor. I remember the relief in the U household when Marvin passed his final tests, and it was like, oh, all of this work, and I am now certified medical doctor. You don't get there on accident. Years in libraries, years in classrooms, years reading scrolls, fostering a life of the mind, trained in classical Greek. Luke knew how to study. Luke knew how to research. Luke knew how to organize his thoughts. He was a thinker. What he didn't know while he was amassing all of these skills was that God the Father was preparing him to research and write not a medical journal, but what some have considered to be some of the most beautiful literature in history, the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. And not just beautiful Greek literarily, but historically exacting. I forget his name, but when I was getting ready for this intro sermon, there was a guy who 
in the mid-1900s set out to prove how ridiculous the Christian faith was. He was a skeptic. He said, here's what I'll do. I'm going to take Luke's gospel, and I'm going to go travel the Mediterranean basin, and I'm going to make a list of all the historical inaccuracies in this fictional fable that he has given us. He goes on a three-year tour with Luke's Acts of the Apostles in his hands, and his list of historical inaccuracies was zero, zero. He said Luke was 100% on the money with every phrase, every inscription, every description, every street name, every landmark, every official title. He was so moved by the accuracy of Luke's Acts of the Apostles, his heart was so open to the message that Luke was conveying that he was born again at the back end of a trip that was meant to refute the gospel. That's what we're holding here. This is what I'm trying to very carefully press on you in the coming months. A well-researched, historically accurate, beautifully written stick of gospel dynamite that people can get converted by hearing this story. Okay, Luke's name does not technically appear in the book. You're just going to see the, the I. But there's a few places that you will notice where the writing goes from the third person plural, they, to the first person plural. We set sail from Troas. We watched these things happen. What that means is that Luke not only researched and wrote this story, but that for a big part of it, Luke lived this story. Luke was from the city of Antioch in Syria. At some point, he heard the gospel, and he believed it, and he was born again, and he gave himself fully to the, the health of the church, to the missionaries that were sent out from the church, to the advance of the gospel. Think about this. This man left behind a medical career, everything he was trained for, all of the wealth and the status and the comfort and the ease that would have come with that practice, left it behind, and he gave himself to serve the cause of the gospel. His actual name does appear in three different places in your Bible. The first is in Colossians. Paul's writing to the Christians at Coloss, and he says this, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. You feel that adjective in there? Beloved. Everybody in the movement of the early church loved Dr. Luke. Especially, especially, especially the Apostle Paul. Paul was Rocky Balboa and Luke was Paulie Panino. You know who that is? Come on, people, go home and watch a movie, all right? Paulie was related to... Adrian, but he was also Rocky's cut man in the corner, right? Paul was great at getting beat up and stoned and whipped and pierced and bloodied. He had Luke in his corner, not only to care for his body, but to care for his soul, who was always there standing by Paul, ready to stitch him up and put him back in the fight. It's Dr. Luke. We see this the second time that Luke is mentioned in the Bible. This is also Paul writing. And he's in jail for the very last time. Everybody is gone. And he goes, oh, 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 but Luke, 
alone is still with me. Do do you feel that? That is giving you an insight into the character of this man whose book we're about to read together. His faithfulness. His all-in demeanor. I'm not going anywhere. His helpful bedside manner. A great physical doctor knows what it is to stand and come beside someone. When you are in that last jail cell for the last time and your end is in sight, who do you want in that jail cell with you? Okay, your mom. And then if she's not around, who? Dr. Luke. That's who. And then there's a third time that we see his name. It's in Paul's letter to Philemon. He says, so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so greets you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. It's the last thing I want you to feel about Luke. Luke broke a sweat for the cause of the gospel. And so as you read these words, as you listen to preaching, I want your heart to be thankful to your father for giving us this brother, inspiring him to write, and allowing us to benefit. That's the back flap of this book. That's who, Dr. Luke. Very excited to hear what he has to say. All right, let's go preface. Let's talk about the why. Why did Luke write the book of Acts? Well, to get this, we have to actually backtrack all the way to the first words, not of Luke's Acts, but of Luke's gospel. Acts is the second volume of a two-volume work that Luke wrote. Why did he do that? Well, the scrolls in their day were only 35 feet long. And so he did all this work on his gospel, and he got down to the end, and he had all this other stuff left to say. So he had to bounce to a second book. So there's this connection from the bottom of Luke and the top of Acts, they bend together. If you go all the way back to the beginning of Luke, here's what he says about why he was writing. This is scripture. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of this word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, and then this, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So it seems like Luke had a connection with a Roman official of some sort named Theophilus. That title, Most Excellent, refers to someone in, in official power, a governor, a ruler. We are not sure if Theophilus was a Christian who was beginning to struggle with doubts and unbelief or uncertainty about the faith that he had stepped into, or if Theophilus was like a brand new convert who was all in but just needed someone to give him anchors into the the doctrine of the Christian faith, the truth of the gospel. Either way, Luke says, here 
is why I wrote. And the key phrase that I don't want you to miss in here is this one. That you may have certainty. This is why he wrote. So as we preach through this book, I want you to feel like those words were written to you. Written to you. Luke is saying, Christian, I want you to be assured the Christ that you confess is the real deal. The gospel that you have believed is true. The ground that you stand on is firm. I want you to feel certain about diving in with Jesus. Okay, so I am not much of a risk taker. I know I planted a church and that surprises people because that's supposed to be some kind of crazy entrepreneurial venture to step into. All right, so I've taken one risk in my life. That was it. This is the fruit of it. But that was the exception of the rule for me. How many scuba divers do we have in here? See, that's risky to me. I mean, down there, your brain can blow up, right? I don't scuba dive. How many parasailers in here? How many people would parasail? Yeah, we'll see. I seen two women crash into a building in the Philippines or something, parasail, and I'm like, what are you doing? Buildings? No. How about skydiving? Yes? <laughs> Crazy. How about bungee jumping? Okay, I won't even do that. I mean... If I do anything crazy like that, it's either because I'm in love with Grace and I want her to like me and so I'll do it. It's crazy stuff at the start of our marriage. I'm like, yes, let's do it. (laughs) Or it's because I've been given great assurances that everything's going to be okay. All right, so an example. When I was 17, we went up to Kangamangas Highway and they've got all these natural pools and stuff that you can jump off and swim in. So all my crazy reckless friends go over to this one thing where you come down this waterfall and then you fly off and there's about three feet of room and you plunge into freezing water and then you swim under the rock and then you pop up. I had to watch like 17 people do this, including a couple of 10, nine-year-olds. I'm like, this is embarrassing. After observing for a half hour, now I was certain I'm not going to get lost in some tunnel under there and then pop up somewhere in northern Vermont. I can do this. It's going to be okay. Do you feel that? Had a friend standing with me. Watch. This is good. This is how it works. Here's what it's like under there. You can have certainty that you can jump in. This is what Luke is doing for you and for Theophilus. He's saying, brother, let me tell you the backstory." so that you may have certainty in what you have believed. Now, of course, when Luke does this with us, for us with his pen, all he is doing is what Jesus has already done for his apostles with his actual physical body. Luke was so certain about these things because the apostles were so certain about these things, and they were so certain about these things because they had seen Jesus alive. Here's how Luke gives it to us in our text. Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So those words right there should be some of the wildest, craziest words you have ever read in your life. It's tricky, right? Like a Christian church 2,000 years after the fact 
That's crazy talk right there. But Dr. Luke just makes it as a plain statement. You know the backstory. For three years, these disciples were friends with and students of and followed Jesus around. Toward the end of this time, they started going, whoa, whoa, whoa. This may be the Christ, the Messiah of Israel. Visions of grandeur, of an earthly kingdom, and an overthrow of the Romans, but all of it suddenly unraveled. And Jesus, their friend and teacher, ended up crucified, naked, shamed on a cross. He was dead and he was buried. Now, there was a lot going through their minds after this took place, but I can tell you one thing that wasn't going through anyone's mind, and what was it? That Jesus was coming back to life. Sometimes we read these stories and we are such arrogant moderns that these think, oh, these gullible ancients with their people resurrecting from the dead. You know that's not the case, right? These folks were more realists than you are. Okay? They dealt with death face to face, hand to hand, all the time. Dead babies and dead mothers in childbirth, dead children, dead husbands and fathers, buried them all. And they knew once they die, it's over. People don't come back from the dead. They don't. When they first heard the story of the empty tomb, what is everyone's reaction? Everyone's reaction. They go, stop it. Get out of here. Why are you playing with me? Cut it out. At the end of Luke's gospel, you see that when the women came back from the tomb saying what they had not seen and seen, Peter refers to it as what? An idle tale. Does that sound like somebody anxious to believe in resurrection? No, that just sounds like a normal guy like you and me who would say, are you out of your mind right now? You need to calm down. Nobody saw this coming. Nobody did. And so, what did the disciples, apostles, desperately need if they were going to become the foundations of the church of Jesus Christ? They needed certainty. They needed verification that Jesus really was alive. And so what does Jesus do for them? I love this part of the story. He gives them the certainty that they need. He appears to them over and over and over again for 40 days. He's talking, real voice box. He's teaching, he's correcting, he's forgiving, he's eating, Look, look, I'm eating real food, digesting real food. He tells Thomas, come on, you can touch my hands, it's okay. I had some melanoma removed from my head, like I like to mess with people sometimes, and I'm like, go ahead, touch it, it's okay. Look, you see the little dent over there? Then they go, I go, ah! Then they get all crazy. I can see Jesus saying, give me your head, put it on my chest. You hear that? That heart is beating. I'm alive. And not one appearance from a distance, right? What do you do if you want to know something? You embrace it. You smell it. You touch it. You listen to its heart beating. This is what Jesus did for his apostles over and over and over again. Why else were they suddenly bold witnesses willing to die for Christ? They had certainty. So that they might have certainty and become fiery witnesses, Jesus did this for them and for you and I and for Luke. Don't forget that Luke is just like you and I. 
Did Luke ever see Jesus alive the first time? Did Luke ever see Jesus risen from the dead the second time? You've seen Jesus alive physically as much as Dr. Luke has, which means not at all, none of us. But when he saw the witness of the apostles, and when he researched this story all the way back to conversations with Mary about the, the, the birth of Jesus, when he saw this thing unfold before his eyes, it was so compelling, there was so much certainty that Luke came to believe. And he is saying to you, I want you to have the same certainty that the apostles and I have. So as you read, your soul should feel encouraged, built up, anchored, assured. Luke wrote these words so that you would see that your feet are on solid ground in the gospel. That's why. Okay, last one, table of contents. Now, they didn't have tabs and nice grids for the table of contents in these days. So Luke gives it to us embedded in the beginning of this last scroll. Where is this story going? All right, let's talk about where the book starts. It just picks off, it picks up where Luke's gospel left off. In fact, we're going to see two ascension stories, the end of one and the beginning of the other. It's like a bridge. Here's how he said it to us today. I have dealt, that's the first book, with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Okay, do you feel that word began in there? Luke's gospel is about what Jesus did while physically present. Luke's acts are about what Jesus continued to do through the Holy Spirit, by the work of the apostles and the people of God. How did this story that we are stepping into begin? Where's it been going so far? Jesus doing and teaching. Jesus doing and teaching. You feel those two things? Words, deeds. Truth, life. We call them this around here because we like words as big as we can get them. Gospel doctrine, gospel culture. In the life of Jesus, these two went together hand in hand. John Calvin calls it a holy knot. You cannot separate the truth from the life. Now, what do we love to do? We love to. We love to separate the two of those, right? Some of us love the teaching side, the doctrine side. Give me the creeds and the confessions Let me think on this and write about this and outline this and play with it up in here. But we don't want to live the life that the doctrine is compelling us to. That's epidemic in the life of Jesus' church. Just keep it up in here. And because I believe up in here, that's enough, right? No. Some of us love the culture side. We just want to be good people. We don't want to muddy things up with truth and creeds, and confessions, and commands. What's the problem with that side? Jesus didn't just come doing. Jesus came teaching. And if you remove the doctrine part, 
There's nothing to hang the culture part on. There's nothing to give shape to the living or energy to the living. In Christ, these two are not separated. In Christ, they go together. You love and you preach and you submit to sound doctrine with repentance and faith. And that issues in holy life and heavenly church culture. Truth, doctrine, teaching, issuing in life, culture, doing. This is what it means to be the people of God. And Luke said, this is what Jesus did with his life in my gospel, teaching and leading, speaking and healing, commanding and building culture among his disciples. They go together. And Luke says, you want to know where I'm going in this second book? Here's where I'm going. Jesus is going to keep teaching and doing. You're going to keep seeing gospel doctrine issue in gospel culture. In this book, you can expect to see Jesus by the Spirit through Peter and John and Paul and Philip and a thousand anonymous saints, men and women, faithful gospel proclamation, beautiful, loving gospel culture over and over and over and over again. And if you hear me say those things and you say, that kind of sounds like our church, it's supposed to. And that's because the last thing that the table of contents helps us with is the question of, that's where this started, that's what's going to be happening over and over again, where does this thing stop? What is the end of the book? What's the last chapter in Luke's table of contents? Well, here's how Luke previews it for us. He says, you will receive power, talking to his church founding apostles, when the Holy Spirit has, boom, come upon you. That's going to be a fun sermon. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I love that. When does the gospel lose steam? When does this story finish? When does it run out of gas? What's the end of this? So he says it's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then I love what he does next. He goes, Earth. Then if there was like people on Mars, we're going to Mars with this thing. There is no end. It's just going to start small and explode out from there. When I was a kid, we lived on a block that had the, the slightest of downhill slopes. So who's my geometry people? What would that be? A 46 degree angle? You're like, come on, man, my brain's already hurting. Whatever that would be, the slightest of downhill slopes. Every now and then on a wicked hot summer morning, Saturday, uh, the neighbor at the very top of the street would wash his car. And gravity being what it is, sudsy water would begin to inch its way down toward our house, which was like third to last on the block. If we were done with our bike riding and our tree climbing and our wiffle balling, we take up a new little hobby, dam building. And we would hustle together all the dirt and all the rocks and all the sticks and all the twigs and all the cardboard that we would 
And like if this was the curb, we would build a dam and we were going to defy the laws of nature. We were going to stop that water from passing by 301 St. John's Avenue. For a little while, the plan would work. Like the first little trickles of water would just bounce up against the curb. And we would stand there, little nine-year-olds, like, look at my power. Then the cement would turn from light gray to dark gray as it absorbed some of the water. Uh, then the, the really dry, sandy dirt that we had would start to get muddy and moppy, and the little bubbles would build up. Uh, and then the water would begin to infiltrate every little crevice of our dam, and it would be sliding anywhere that it would go. And then inevitably, to our elementary school dismay, what would happen Every time this guy ever washed his car and turned on that hose and the water was coming our way, every time, inevitably that water would break through that dam. So we'd run two houses down and we'd try to build up another one and we're going to get it this time, over and over again, to no avail, to no avail, to no avail. Once the hose was running, there was no stopping the spread of that water. So the book of Acts is the story of Jesus by his spirit and in his grace turning on the hose of the gospel. Only this is no you know, slow-moving creep of sudsy car wash water. This is the story of an infinitely massive torrent of divine grace that overruns every obstacle, every barrier in its way. This is the story of the relentless, relentless advance of the gospel of grace. Did you hear the table of contents? From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and then he just goes, earth. No geographic barrier can stop the advance of the gospel of the grace of God. You're going to see Jews, Samaritans, Asians, Africans, Italians coming to faith in Jesus. No racial reality can stop the advance of the gospel of God's grace. Cannot do it. You're going to see fishermen and CFOs. We've already seen a medical doctor. Fashion magnates, prison guards, tent makers. No demographic barrier can stop the advance of the gospel of grace. What about the hostile religious leaders? Can't do it. What about the unsympathetic, arrogant governors? Cannot do it. What about Herod, the murderous king, taking James's life? Does that stop this book? Cannot do it. What about the condescending philosophers in Boston? I mean Athens. Can they stop the advance of the gospel? Cannot do it. How about betrayals from within the community? How about arrest and imprisonment of their leaders? How about beatings of their pastors? How about martyrdoms? Godly deacon Stephen is stoned inside of them all. How about mobs? How about riots? How about heresies? 
How about storms? How about shipwrecks? How about venomous snake bites? How about 40 dudes who take an oath to kill Paul before they will eat another meal? Does anything stop? Can anything stop the relentless advance of the gospel? No. You name it, we're going to see it all, and none of it can stay the hand of God the Father in making all things new for the glory of Christ. That's where this book is going. And here's the most awesome part of all of this. Not only is Acts not a fanciful fable, fanciful fable, we've dealt with that, but it's not ancient history. Acts is not done. The relentless advance of this gospel is a story that continues in your lifetime. In your lifetime. Man, how graced are you? The book of Acts does not end with a period, but with a comma. I like to use that ellipse thing, as you know if you're on the city. What's the ellipse? Dot, dot, dot. What is it? It's that beautiful grammatical tool that lets you communicate an unfinished thought. This thing is still going. That is how the book of Acts ends. It's impossible to give a table of contents because it's still going. We still live in the gospel era, living between the advents of King Jesus. This story is still unfolding. The same exact gospel promises that you're going to hear heralded by Jesus' apostles are for you, for me, for our children, for our city. They're still in play. The same spirit that exploded on that upper room on Pentecost is still about his saving work today. I need you to hear this. The same holy and joyful and missional church culture that you're going to see on these pages is available to us here today. Jesus is still justifying sinners. The kingdom of God is still being populated. And so this inspired account of our family history and the, the foundations of the church is not to be read for a minute about an interesting tale for another time. This was written for your good so that you can lean into this and get your bearings on what it looks like to believe the gospel and to be the church and to live for the glory of God right now, today. The hose is still running and nothing can stop its advance. All right. Some of you are just not excited enough about this. If I could picture the way that you live your life, earth is huge, this world, and heaven is like this tiny little speck, okay? I am praying that the book of Acts shakes you from that way of living, and you come to see the kingdom of God is everything, and this brief 20, 30, 50, 80 years that I have gets to prepare my soul for what I have coming. And the realities of the heaven to come gets to inform and transform and make different the life that I live now. If you're not excited about gospel grace 
flowing into your life and your home and your soul and these cities, then you're missing out on what God is doing that has eternal roots to it. So if you're not excited, I'm praying that you would get excited. And then lastly, some of you have lost hope of this. Some of you come into this like Theophilus maybe, saying, I've heard all these words, but my soul is not believing that God can break through barriers, that the Spirit of God is still for me and active in transforming my life and my whole, my home and these cities for his glory. I've just kind of lost hope of that. And I am praying that story after story, sermon after sermon, gospel community conversation after conversation, your hopes begin to be fanned like a flame to see that Jesus Christ is really risen, that his gospel is really true, that the Spirit of God really answers prayers, that we have really been invited into the kingdom of God, and that like Dr. Luke, we can revel in what God has done and what God is doing. That's where we're going. All right, let's pray together. Father, we are so quickly skeptical and doubtful. I will confess before anyone that I am about to go to downtown Melrose and there will be thousands of people at a Victorian fair that started in the morning on the Lord's Day and have no desire or appetite for the things of God. I pray that you would strike doubt from my heart, that I would know your gospel to be true and your spirit to be alive, and that I would not doubt that you have saved me for an eternally glorious future. And that the only reason any day on this life, in this life on this earth, has any joy is because of the kingdom that is to come that has broken into right now. That you really forgive sin. That you really have a place waiting for us. That you really empower us now to live holy for your glory. That your gospel promises are still active and true. And that they and we and our children and our families are invited to believe. Father, I pray that this year not a single person who hears the preaching of the book of Acts would be able to escape the torrent of the divine grace of God, that it would burst through their idols and their sins like a stream, like a river, like a hurricane, that in your grace you would transform so many here that we wouldn't fit, that our stories of joy would go on and on and on. I thank you for your spirit and that he has inspired scripture to be written for our benefit and for our good. And I pray that we would see with certainty that we are loved by a holy God who is making all things new. Make us the kind of people who love your truth and love to live in accord with it. These are my prayers for this time. Meet us here, I pray. Amen.